Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Let's start with a quick recap from last week. It'll, it'll just be brief, but I want us to give a kind of context for where we are starting today. We're gonna be in Isaiah 45, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there now. Uh, we'll also put it up on the screen in a moment. But these chapters, 45 through 48, they follow um, a few chapters that we covered last week that introduce this contrast of a servant. And Isaiah the prophet introduces this idea that Israel was viewed from God's perspective as his servant on the earth. That they were the stewards of his presence and their responsibility was to establish the t- the, his place of worship, the tabernacle, the temple, and that place of worship would, in a way, call all the nations to come and learn God's ways. That was the purpose of what was happening with Israel. So their job was to be God's servant. The problem was that Israel had eyes for becoming like the rest of the world. And eventually they no longer wanted to be God's servant, they wanted to be like every other nation. And so Isaiah describes that process as them becoming blind. And God's punishment for that was to send them into exile, to lose their inherited land and to go off into Babylon as exiles. Now when Isaiah is saying all this, it's not actually gonna happen for another 100 years. So when he writes, he's actually writing for the comfort of the people in 100 years from now, but he's giving context. He's like, look, the reason why you're in exile is because you've become blind. You've lost your sense of sight and purpose. But God has good news. He's gonna free you from exile. He's gonna send you home, but that's not the end of the story. He's also gonna send a new servant who will specialize in opening blind eyes. And he's gonna do this, not because you've been faithful, you've been unbelievably unfaithful. He's gonna do this because he is faithful. Because he told his servant Abraham that he was gonna do this. He promised, he made a covenant that he would do this through, this, through these people. And so he's gonna fulfill this covenant, not because they have fulfilled their part of it, but because he is always true to his word and he cannot lie to the point where even if he swears on something, he has to swear on himself because there's nothing greater than him. And so we, we, we start 45 on the heels of that conversation of the servant, that Israel was a blind servant and there's going to be this new servant who opens blind eyes and, and we know that that's Jesus. So those two important pieces of information we learned from last week was that the exiles would be going home but there would also be another servant coming. Of those two pieces of information, 45 through 48 address that first piece of information, that first truth, you're going home. So as we get into 45 today, the prophet is going to tell the people 100 years in the future how they're gonna get home. God's gonna send you home and he's going to do it a very specific way. Now, for the people living in Babylon, they assume, they know, we, we, we know how God does these things because this isn't the first time we've been in exile. 
There was a time when we lived as slaves in Egypt. And so when God says he's gonna set his people free, we know what he's talking about. There's gonna be this little Hebrew baby who's gonna be born and then he's gonna be put in a basket and he's gonna flow down this river and then the king of Babylon's gonna find him and raise him and then he's gonna have to go out in the wilderness for like 40 years and then he's gonna come back and then he's gonna set the people free and there's gonna be plagues. There's gonna be a challenge, it's gonna be really nasty and Nebuchadnezzar's gonna be like, I don't want any part of this and then all of a sudden he's gonna be like, okay, I'll set them free but well, we've, we've, we've watched this show, it's reruns. God says you're gonna set us free, we, okay, we believe you and we know exactly how it's gonna happen. But there's a problem, because when Isaiah starts talking in 45 about how this glorious rescue is gonna happen, he reveals a plan that's highly offensive. So here's our rhythm for today before we kinda go into what the plan is. Isaiah 45 and 46 are the prophet declaring that God is sovereign, he does things because he wants to do these things. He doesn't have to check with anybody. He's all powerful. He puts plans in place and he accomplishes them and he doesn't need anybody's input. So the prophet's gonna say, God's gonna accomplish these plans and here's how he's going to accomplish these plans. But God is supreme. He is all-knowing, he is all-powerful and in context, in, 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 in relation to that truth. In 45 and 46, he's gonna declare God is all, he's all powerful, he's everything. And then 47 is, so if this is true, how does that relate to Babylon? And then 48 is, if this is true, how does that relate to Israel? Now this is important to understand this flow for us to kind of get this, because and we've talked about this numerous times, Babylon wasn't just a place in the Bible. When Babylon gets overthrown by Cyrus, when he comes in uh, around Daniel chapter five or six, and he overthrows the nation of Babylon, they're essentially gone. There's, there's not really a Babylon anymore. And so in the New Testament, Peter is writing, and he references Babylon. John in Revelation references Babylon. So if there's no more Babylon, who are these people in the New Testament referencing? Well, and we've talked about this, that Babylon is not just a location, it's an ideology. It's a worldly system, it's a way of thinking. And so Babylon becomes, after they get overthrown, the, sim the symbolism for us as believers to see that the way that the world's systems have this, this subtlety to kind of seep into everything and it influences culture and it influences art and it influences government and it influences like politics and it influences education and it influences social media and it influences everything that everything in the world has an agenda and it wants to disciple you in its ways. That's Babylon. And so when we look at the supremacy of God in 45 and 46, and then we see what that supremacy means for Babylon, we're not just talking about Babylon in 530, we're talking about Babylon, the culture of Babylon, the worldview for all eternity. So we're talking about today too. So what is, if the supremacy of God is true, what does that mean to the world we live in? 
And we know that Israel was God's people and, and we're told in the New Testament that we Gentiles are now grafted in and so we're heirs of the promise. And so when we're talking about God's people, we're not just talking about the promises uh, to Israel, we're talking about the church being a part of the entirety of God's plan. And so we are now God's people. So if the supremacy of God has implications on Babylon and Israel, then the supremacy of God also has implications on the world we live in and the church today. So that's where we're going. You with me? So 45 and 46, the supremacy of God. 47, what does that mean to Babylon? 48, what does that mean to the church? Let's get started, Isaiah 45. Let's go to verse one. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. All right, we're gonna continue, but just a quick pause. Who is Cyrus? Cyrus is the king of the Persians. So just a quick reality check here. God calls Cyrus, the king of Persia, a Gentile, my anointed. He takes him by the right hand. That is a Hebrew idiom or phrase that means deep friendship. I'm gonna grasp you by the right hand means I'm gonna take you in close friendship, like shaking a hand and then pulling in for one of those good bro hugs. That's what the Hebrew language is trying to communicate there. So right off the bat, Isaiah is, is, is like, Imagine Israel's got this big balloon and they're like, oh yeah, this balloon is a symbol of, of how God's gonna free us. And it's, it's like Moses, we're gonna get another Moses. And Isaiah just comes up with a big old pin and he's like, pop! Nope, there's not gonna be a Moses. There's gonna be a Cyrus and he's not even Jewish. That's highly offensive. Verse two. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in the pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who called you by your name. Okay, now we see what he's doing. He's not just calling, calling Cyrus to free his people. He's calling Cyrus so that the Gentiles will know his name. Isaiah 45, 700 years before Jesus is born, and we're already seeing the gospel message. Verse four, for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. See, I'm the Lord, and there is no other besides me. There is no God, and I equip you, though you do not know me. Remember we're talking about the supremacy of God? He's establishing his credentials. So God, what can you do? Well, I can do anything because there's none like me. I can equip, I can cut through bronze and tear through bars of iron. I can do anything because I'm the Lord. Verse six, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I'm the Lord and there is no other. See. I can form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So what do you do? How do we respond? 
Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open up, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Okay, wow. So let's start here. Verse one, Cyrus, God's anointed. So God's great plan for setting Israel free is letting a Gentile king come in and do the work. No, 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 Lord, this is not how you work. This is not how you do things. We know how you work. And the idea that you would offer a plan that is not like what we would do, or you haven't even consulted us, is is highly offensive. How could you possibly, Lord, we're in exile among Gentile people. Why are you gonna send a Gentile? Wouldn't your name be magnified if, if a child grew up from the middle of them? Well, yeah, that, that is coming, but not yet. What's coming first is Cyrus to come in and overthrow Babylon. Why would you do that, Lord? Why would you, why would you challenge this? Why would you go this route? Because it demonstrates that he can do all things, that he can form light and create darkness, that he can make well-being and calamity. This is what's on the table. God is declaring that this tiny little nation called Israel in the midst of the whole world that doesn't even live at home anymore, they live in exile, is not just the God of this tiny nation, he's the God of the entire world world. See, God, our God, is not just the God of Christians. He's the God of the entire world. He's the God of everyone, even those who don't even know his name. For those who shake their fists in the sky and say, I don't even believe you exist, he's still the God over them. That's the way this works, and that's why he called Cyrus because he's saying, I know that my people think that they understand how I work, but it's such a tiny little representation. Really the God that my people serve is a reproduced version of themselves. They've reformed me in their own image and so I'm gonna go broader and I'm gonna let them know that the mission I originally gave them to call all nations to come and learn my ways that they didn't fulfill, I'll go ahead and fulfill that my way and I'll start by calling this Persian from the corners of the earth to come and do my bidding. And in me calling him and blessing him, he might just learn my name. And the Hebrew people in exile are like, God, that's, that's not fair. Why in the world would you do this? Well, I think that there's biblically three reasons why God did this and still does this today. The first being that when God does offensive things in front of his people, it prepares the people for even more offensive things. Because here's what hasn't happened yet. God hasn't sent his own son to be murdered by all creation. There is nothing more offensive than God sending his own son to his own creation and the creation murdering God. And so what the prophet is saying is God's gonna call Cyrus and it's gonna be offensive, but really what I'm doing is I'm just trying to raise your temperature for what you can be offended by. 
If you get offended by Cyrus, boy, just wait till Jesus shows up. I think that's one reason why he does offensive things. I think the second reason why he works this way is because it invites humanity to come and seek him. Paul's talking about this in Acts 17, 27 when he's preaching uh, in Athens and he essentially says, um, look, the reason why God does what he does is on the off chance that some of these people, when he reaches out to them, might respond and start feeling their way towards him and trust him. Why would God use non-believers to accomplish his plans? You've got a church, you've got angels. Because in doing that, he's offering these people the opportunity to repent and turn to a holy God who knew their name before they knew his name. And I think the third reason is because it exposes our appetite for offense. Because we really like challenging God. Now, no one's gonna say that. No one's gonna say like, I like challenging God. But every time you look in the mirror and you say, I don't like my nose. Guess who picked that nose? I wish I was taller. I wish I was shorter. I wish I didn't look like that. I wish I weighed less. I wish I could get more muscle. I wish I had that talent, or I wish I had that person to love me. Or I wish I wasn't born in this century. I wish, I wish, I wish. If I just had that thing out there, things would be so much better in my life. I was born this way, but I'm pretty sure God got it wrong because I feel differently. You see where I'm going with this? Every time you take something that God has given you and you say, I would have done differently, it is an exposing of you challenging his authority. God, I think you got this one wrong. And so he walks through this process of offending us to show us how bad and to the extent that we do this. So let's talk a little bit more about what it looks like when God's own creation starts telling God what he did right and wrong. Remember, we're talking about the supremacy of God here. Verse nine, woe to him who strives with him who formed him. (laughs) Well put. A pot among earthen pots, does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or, you know, you forgot to put handles on me. (laughs) Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? What does that mean? Imagine an embryo telling the mother what kind of qualities it wants before it's born. Yeah, I, 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 you better give me blue eyes. Embryo, that's ridiculous. And that's the point that the prophet is trying to get across. Things that are created don't tell the creator how things work. Created things are simply created by the creator and then they give what the creator gave them back to the Lord in worship. 
Verse 11, thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? See, look, I made the earth and the create and created man on it, and it was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all of their hosts. I have stirred him up in righteousness, now we're talking about Cyrus, and I will make all him I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. So God is going to use Cyrus to set his people free. And if that offends you, then your option is repent. Because God is not taking meetings to listen to what we have to say about the way he decided to do his things because he's the one who stretched out the heavens and he's the one who commanded all of their host. He sets the boundaries, he sets the rules, and our responsibility is to live within those boundaries and rules. But as humans, we don't like that and sin makes it even worse. But here's the reality that the prophet's trying to get across. We don't create things. Anything that we do create comes from the resources that he has already given us. Mankind can't come up with new stuff. We can only use the stuff he's already given us in new and interesting ways. We can't set new boundaries or rules or redefine things that he has established since the foundation of the world. We don't get the luxury of redefining things that he has established since the foundation of the world. We don't get the luxury of redefining things that he's established since the foundation of the world. Man, we like to try though. We like telling him. We like looking at this book and saying, man, this thing's 2,000 years old. I think it's out of date. We've come a little bit farther since this was written. With all our technology and the way we see things, I, I, I think we should probably revisit this, this sexuality conversation. It's a little dated. I think we should revisit this leadership structure thing. It's a little outdated. I've got some new ideas on things. Well, when you stretch out the heavens with your own hands and command all of their host, then come and talk to me and we'll... Everything that we have is an overflow of the creator's resources. But the beauty is that the offense doesn't stop there. It goes even worse. In 14 through 21, God says to the prophet that Cyrus is going to deliver Israel, but he's also going to finance the venture. He's going to supply all the money. Cyrus is going to send him home, and he's going to send him home with a big paycheck to make it happen. And the money isn't going to be Hebrew money. It's going to be the wealth of the nations. And all the nations are going to look and they're going to say, what is, what is your Lord doing? He is so mysterious. In, in verse 19, it says, you're, the nations are going to look at what, God, what I'm doing in Cyrus and they're going to say, your God is a mystery. And then God responds and says, but I want you to remind the world that I am not a mystery. My ways are not a mystery. I spoke my ways a long time ago. I have never concealed myself. Now you may not understand why I'm doing a thing, but you can always know what I am doing because I have said it since the beginning of the book. 
What I am doing is offering redemption to all all mankind and declaring my glory to all ends of the earth. That is really important because what that means is God is not in it for you to have a better job. God is not in this redemption process for more money or better position or more influence. Sometimes it means having less of that because that is what will bring him most glory and redeem you. And we're convinced because of where we live in the world that more equals better and less certainly God can't be in. And then we're confronted with a savior being born in a manger. And all of the majesty of God being wrapped in this tiny little child that has to be cared for by two human parents. Do you imagine the stress that would be to make sure Jesus like doesn't roll off the changing table? Oh my, good night. No, I don't want that. But Mary's like, be unto me according to your will. All right, I don't get it, but whatever. God, he, he blasts his supremacy across the world in the smallest, weakest of things. And that's the reason why he's calling Cyrus, because he's declaring that I am a God like no other. I will save you. Come to me and I will carry you. And what he gets into in the end of 45, 22 is this radical new idea that nobody has ever heard of before. It's the opportunity, or it's the, it's the offer that God will do the work on your behalf. Oof. I don't know that we've still wrapped our heads around that because we're convinced from our ancestors teaching us that if you want God to do things like rain on your crops, there's a little bit of work you've got to do to kind of stir up what needs to happen in the heavenlies. You want God to answer your prayer? You need to pray a little harder, maybe pray a little more, maybe make a little sacrifice and then he'll hear you. That's not the offer and that's not how our God works. Go to verse 22. It says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, and from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Look at that, Romans 14, 11 and Philippians 2, 10. Every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength to him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Look at that, Galatians 3.29. Verse, chapter 46, verse one. Bel bows down, that's a Babylonian idol. Nebo stoops, another Babylonian idol. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob. Listen to me, church. All the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from me, your birth. Listen to me, church. I carried you from the womb. 
even into your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear and I will carry and I will save. So why is God calling Cyrus? Because it reveals the plan of salvation to the entire world. That was 22 through 25. John 6, 40, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. This is God's plan of redemption. I'm going to carry you. All you have to do is look to me and I will do all of the carrying, which is contrary to the way that idolatry and we live a lot of our lives. The idea being that we have to carry the things that we make. And what I mean by that is not little idols that you have on your mantle. I'm talking about the things that you made in your life at like maybe 15 or 16. An experience happened, maybe something you did or something that happened to you, but you formed something out of that experience that now when you're 35, you still look back to in submission of. You can't be a free believer in Christ because that thing is still whispering 20 years from you in your past. And you carry this with you everywhere. You carry these experiences and these emotions and they define you and they give you comfort even though they torment you. Because somebody said something about the way you look or that you'll never, some teacher told you you'll never amount to anything and you looked up to that teacher and that has formed in your life some form of an idol and you carry it with you all through life and you are the beast of burden. You are no different than the nation of Babylon bowing down to the idols that it makes for itself. See, you made that into an idol. It could have been something that you surrendered to the Lord and said, you know, when you give me a new identity, I'm gonna take that identity. I trust you over what my fifth grade teacher said about me, so, or, or what my mother said about me. I'm gonna trust what you say about me, and that's gonna be the end of it. But we don't do that, we take what's somebody said or we some experience or some, some moment in the past or, or, or some, something that we did and we had to pay the price for and we form that into a little bit of idol and it just sits right behind us and we're listening to the Lord say, you're my child. I love you. I forgive you. I will carry you. And you're like, that's a good deal. Except I'm still carrying all of this baggage. And so what Isaiah is saying before Jesus is even born, that God is offering redemption to the entire world and the offer is, I will carry you. So you can either carry what you made or let your maker carry you. That's the gospel message. So now that we're at the end of 45 and 46, let's recap what God has said about himself. He says, I'm God and there's none like me. Not much room for debate. He says, I've made a plan of redemption. There's no idols. There's just me. You're gonna have to trust me that I'll carry you. So what does this mean for Babylon and the world? And what does this mean for Israel and the church? Go to verse chapter 47 of Isaiah. Let's start in verse one. What does the supremacy of God mean to Babylon? 
Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind flour. Put off your veil, strip off your robe, uncover your legs, and pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, is his name, the Holy One of Israel. That seems kind of out of place, right? Babylon, you saw yourself as this glorious princess, and now I'm gonna make you a slave girl who has to get down on her knees and grind wheat and pick up her dress just to walk through the river because you don't have servants to do that for you anymore. And then out of nowhere, our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. Why is that in there? Is to remind us who's doing this. Because we have a way of looking at the power and the might of nations and saying that thing will never crumble. And then God looks and says, eh, you're just like a queen that I turned into a slave girl. That'll crumble if I say it'll crumble. Verse five, sit in silence and go down in the darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. See, I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage and I gave them into your hands and you showed them no mercy. On the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. So I asked you to take care of my people to steward them in their exile, and you went too far. You exploited my people. And then you said, I shall, be, I shall be mistress forever, so that you did not lay these things to heart to remember to their end. Now therefore hear this, you lover of pleasures. I want you to listen to this, not just with the Babylonian ear, but with the, the, world, the world's ear. Listen to the prophet speaking to our world today. Hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment and in one day the loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure. Your greatest fear will spring upon you. In spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments, even though you have control, even, even though you've gotten to the place where you've mastered everything in the physical world and that wasn't enough for you, now you gotta start mastering things in the spiritual world. Is there any, has anybody wondered why our culture now has a fascination with superheroes and magic? It's because we've mastered everything that we can touch and see and now we've told ourselves, well, there must be more. And so let's dip into the supernatural and try and manipulate that too. It's not the first time it's happened in the world. See, you felt secure, verse 10, in your wickedness, and you said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray, and you said in your heart, I am he, and there is no one besides me. See, that's a reference to Isaiah 43, 11, when God says that about himself. God says, I am the only, there is none besides me. But Babylon started saying that about themselves. Verse 11, but evil shall come upon you which you will not know how to charm away, and disaster shall fall upon you for which you will not be able to atone, and ruin shall come upon you suddenly of which you know nothing. Steadfast in your enchantments 
and your many sorceries with which you labored from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons have make known that what shall come upon you. So the the sorcerers, the, uh, the people who are staring at the stars trying to predict the future. Behold, they are like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this, no fire to sit before. Such to you are those with whom you have labored, who have done business with you from your youth. They wander about each in his own direction, and there is no one to save you. So what does God's supremacy mean to ancient Babylon? It means judgment for treating God's people too harshly and for elevating themselves too high. What does the supremacy of of God mean to modern day Babylon? It means that all the world's systems will be judged and punished. And I'm not just talking about individual people. I'm, entire, I'm talking about entire systems and economies that have been set up to exploit God's people. Entire stock markets burned to the ground because they were built on the bones of God's people. They're getting judged because the exploitation of God's people, but they're also getting judged because the world has said, I am he and there is none like me. There is no God above me. I'm it, I'm God. I say what's best for my life. You can't tell me anything. Judgment. proud and the arrogant being exposed. Now, what does God's supremacy mean for God's people? 48 verse one. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in might, not in truth or right. So you people who call yourself by God's name, who call yourself Christians, but not in truth, not in what is right, only for the social title that comes with a person who is religious. For they called themselves after the holy city, they stay themselves on God of Israel, the Lord of hosts is his name. Because of all that, because this is how my people worked and I am supreme. The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them and suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead is brass. I declared them to you from old before they ever came to pass, I announced them so that you couldn't ever say my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. God told you about redemption and forgiveness so that one day you wouldn't look back at your life that you built in this American dream and say, look what I did. Verse six, you have heard now see all this. 
Will you not declare it from this time forth? I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. Because you called yourself by my name, but you wouldn't be my people. And because I told you what was happening before it would happen, but you ended up calling that idol worship anyway, I'm gonna start doing some new things. Jump down to verse 17 to find out what those new things are. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments, then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like waves of the sea. And your offspring would have been like sand and your descendants like its grains. Their name would have never been cut off or destroyed from before me. But they were. And now you're in exile, but you're still my people. So here's what I want you to do. You exiles, you slaves in Babylon, here's what I want you to do. Go out from Babylon, free from the Chaldea. Declare this with a shout of joy and proclaim it. Send it out to the ends of the, the earth and say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. So what does the supremacy of God mean to God's people? It means faithfulness, worship, and a forsaking of Babylon. What does it mean that God is all powerful to a people who are in exile because they made horrible decisions and chose to serve themselves rather than serve God? What does it mean? It means that God is supreme and even though they were unfaithful, he was supremely faithful and he has put together a plan to send a Gentile king to overthrow their oppressors, send them home and then give them another servant to open their blind eyes. This is the supremacy of God to the people of Israel. God is more faithful than you. He loves you more than you could ever love him. And he is offering to carry you from exile, from nothingness, from desert lands with no water and no hope, home. That's the offer to the people of Israel. And the offer is the same to us today. What does God's supremacy mean for us today? It means that there is faithfulness on God's part in our current exile. That in the desert seasons that you go through when things are miserable, God is still faithful in the middle of those and he's using those things to work together good and his glory. He hasn't forsaken you. Because the image that we have of our God sometimes is that there is God who desires good and perfect things for our life, our definition of good and perfect things. And then there is this evil God who is just really good at thwarting the good God's plans and he swoops in and, and he stops the God from being able to accomplish his plans and, and the God is like, man, if I could just get that guy out of the way. Urgh. That. His plan for us is just always good, but he doesn't have the power to remove this darkness out of my life because I invited it in and now I've got to pay the price. That's not the story of the gospel. The story of the gospel is not you just suffering through something that God doesn't have the power to bring you out of. The story of the gospel is that God will carry you through it. And so, as a person living in exile, a person living in a Babylon, 
What does the supremacy of God mean to us? It means that our faithful God is offering an exit strategy from this world. How does he do that? He does that by offering to us a trading in of the things of this world for the things of his world. When he says go out from Babylon, what he's saying is you are living in this culture. You are immersed in this culture. This culture is discipling you through your phone, through your television, through the news that you watch. You are being discipled by this world. It is telling you how to think. And what does the supremacy of God mean for a person who's living that? It, it means, hey, you, you, know, you don't have to live there. You can step out of that, you can flee from Babylon, you can run from that culture who's defining your happiness. You can flee that nonsense and on your way out, you can scream and shout in worship so that all the nations hear the sound of a free person running from a slave culture into something new. That's called preaching the gospel. That's what preaching the gospel looks like. It sounds like 10 million running people screaming at the top of their lungs, praise Jesus for setting me free. And not just from the power of sin and death, but from the power that Babylon holds on the hearts of this world. The convincing that you'll never be anybody or anything or amount to anyone unless you trade in and compromise and do things our way. We will shout you down. We will make you disappear. We will take your life away from you unless you play by our rules. And what, what, what is that sound? Oh, it is the sound of rushing people running at top speed, worshiping Jesus because they're doing the very opposite of what you said was not possible. So, if we know what the supremacy of God looks like for Babylon and for Israel and for, for the church, what does this look like for us specifically? If I was gonna help you contextualize this just a little bit, what, is this, what does this look like? I think it looks like becoming more acquainted with his faithfulness and less acquainted with our idols. I defined what an idol is, and I think that it's important for us to start practicing, forsaking this world and idols and becoming more acquainted with his faithfulness. I think it means learning and submitting to his ways and not bending his plan to fit our ways. I think that's what it means. I think it means resting in how he carries us and no longer burdening ourselves with things that we formed before he saved us not letting those things give us identity and comfort and safety. And I think it means forsaking Babylon in all of its ways with a song in your mouth and the gospel um, coming out of well, your mouth. I already said that, singing mouth, yeah. Fleeing Babylon and letting your mouth sing the praises of God and preach the gospel. I think that's what it means. And this is the, beauty, this is the glorious way that Isaiah presents this. It's like, look, I want you to just stare at the majesty of God. Behold who he is. Quit looking at this stuff. Quit looking at this. Put it all down. Run from Babylon and just behold him. Drink it in. Like the earth that accepts the rain 
that opens up and says, just rain that righteousness on me. Be the earth who just opens up and says, I'm going to suck it all in. Just, just pour it out on me. Just display your majesty. This is what I want to look at. Because the more you stare at that, the less you have an appetite for the other stuff. That's the cycle. That's the call. Forsake by beholding. And the way Isaiah lays it out is just like, look at Jesus. Look at that. Look at what he did. Look at how he foretold it. Look at what's coming. How can you look at that and then turn around and have any appetite for this stuff? So you want to conquer those idols that you've formed? You want to get through the slug of life? Here's how you do it. You start the conversation. What do I do with Babylon? What do I do with the church? You always start the conversation with what do I do with this God? Look at him. And when you stare at him, nothing else holds a candle. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.